I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture through the lens of the tradition that goes back to the apostles. Now, of course, we love to have you become part of the show by adding your own questions or comments. And you can do that during the live program, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in from North America at the number 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, that won't work. So you can call country code 1, area code 205, 271 2980. That's 1 205 271 2980. You can also send us your questions or comments via email by writing to scripture and tradition at ewtn.com or you can follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, Today, we'll finish up our discussion of our Lord Jesus' temptations in the desert. We'll look at the third and last temptation, the last dish effort by, Saint, by Satan. And then we'll take a look at how the aftermath of these temptations affected our Lord. So let's take a look at that. We're still in Matthew chapter 4. And if you want, you can follow along in this series with my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus Launches His Public Ministry. And that is available uh, by going to EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC.com. That's a religious catalog. And it is item number 526. Eight, seven. So, let's start there with verse 8, where it says, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Okay? Now, first of all, notice that this third temptation by Satan is to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And it is just for one small little infraction of a commandment. Just break one commandment and you can have all this. And that is the commandment. That's the first commandment in our list of 10 commandments from Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus chapter 20. That you shall worship the Lord of God and him alone shall you serve. And one of the things about the temptation is that Satan makes it look 
as if this is just a small little thing. It's no big deal, just a little act of worship of me compared to owning all the kingdoms of the world. That seems like no big deal at all, right? Now, something that may be worth noting, in the Old Testament, to um, uh, do something like uh, worship and serve is a very specific kind of commandment because it wants to include not only acts of worship, but also doing things that aid and abet the worship of these other gods. So that, that's where the commandment is trying to be more inclusive, that it's worship and serving these other gods and doing things at their service or that promotes them. So that's what, what's being forbidden. Now, something that's also very interesting is that you can notice our Lord Jesus does not dispute that Satan is in charge of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He assumes with Satan that the various kingdoms of the world are under Satan's dominion. They're under his control. And this is something worth considering, you know, because a lot of times we like to focus on a lot of worldly power. Think about the widespread evil that exists in the world. Right now we are focusing on the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. But have there not been plenty of illegal and immoral invasions throughout history? And it usually means not only the death of soldiers, but also the death of many innocent men, women, and children who have nothing to do with fighting have no political power, but invading armies quite frequently rob, kill, and rape, or sometimes do all three, the people who are just residents of an area. And this is one type of grave evil that goes on. And we should reflect on this. And it's not only Russia, it's not only Nazi Germany. The United States and Britain and many other countries. Matter of fact, I would say it's pretty safe to assume that the vast majority of other countries and even smaller groups within those countries do the same kinds of evil deeds. Human history is full of war. Uh, up until 1900, the number of people who died in secular wars was 119 million people. That's a lot of people. The number of people who died in wars of Christianity were about two and a half million. 
and the number of people who died uh, in the last 1,400 years of jihad is about 280 million people. You know, when you think back on people like Tamerlane, who himself, in his lifetime, in his wars, uh, in the name of jihad, in favor of his Sufi movement, uh, killed about 30 million people, just under Tamerlane. And this, is, this was horrible. But nothing, neither secular nor religious uh, killings, compares to the 20th century, where secular, nationalistic, and especially atheistic governments are responsible from 1914 to the year 2000 for about 304 million people being killed. 304, that's three times as much as the secular wars prior to 1900. And this is something that is filled with war. And think about how, not only in ancient times, but in modern times and right now, how many people are subjected to slavery. The Nazis subjected people to slavery. The communists enslaved people. All of these things, and of course we know the history of slavery in this country, but it was actually even smaller, as evil as it was. We're aware of it. But in Russia, it was even worse. And so these kind of things are typical. And this comes from a combination of pride and nationalism, as well as selfish desires to acquire other people's stuff and other people. And this motivates so many societies to commit these awful crimes. Now, there are some optimistic schools of philosophy that try to believe that humanity's goodness will just come forth if just believe that we're good and all that. But as we've seen in the French Revolution, where the, the themes were fraternity, liberty, and equality, they led to the worst war Europe had yet to that point seen. And more people died in the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars subsequent to it than had died in the previous 1,800 years of religious wars. So this is something that goes around and is part of history. And it's for this reason that in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus our Lord says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. He assumes that Satan is the ruler of this world, driving these lesser kind of things. And even St. Paul, who lived at a time known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, because there was really only one war during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and in Paul's life there weren't any. Um, so this was... Uh, relatively peaceful time, and yet 
he was also aware of the evil in his world. Here we see in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 that he talks about the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And later on, as part of the evil, somebody like Nero and those who were his toadies, um, he very much, uh, he died a martyr for the faith along with St. Peter and many others. So they were well aware, even at its best, the Roman Empire had this evil in it. And over the next 300, well, 250 years after Paul, Roman persecutions occurred about 10 different times. Now, another very important point about Satan's temptation here. If you just worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Not only does he assume that he has it, but he is willing to use a principle too many people today still use, namely, the end justifies the means, that you can do something that is sinful, like worshiping Satan, in order to get good stuff, like the kingdoms of the world, and that the ends justifies the means. That's one of his principles. This is not a principle that we would use. Matter of fact, it's significant to note, some of you have seen the video that I was in uh, called Wolf in Sheep's Clothing about Saul Alinsky. If you recall, he dedicated quite purposely his book, Rules for uh, Radicals, to Satan because he said he was the first rebel against the system. That's, that was his reasoning. And he states that in the, in the intro. And one of the things that he makes very clear throughout his book in his Ten Commandments for Radicals and things like that is that the ends justifies the means. He not only dedicates his book to Satan, he also claims that the ends justifies the means. Whatever you have to do to get what you want, it's okay as long as you get something that you want. That's not good enough. That Jesus, had he accepted this principle that the end justifies the means, he would have then slipped into Satan's kingdom of sin and darkness. And he would have not won the kingdoms over for God. He, they would have stayed within the darkness of Satan, just adding Jesus to the darkness. That's the thing that we see here. And this is uh, something that Jesus did not do, uh, even though the first Adam did follow that principle. The, even Adam thought it would be good to eat the fruit to get the knowledge of good and evil and to have the knowledge that God has. That was the serpent's logic. But this is something that is very important and this is why our Lord says in John 14 verse 30 that the ruler of this age has no power over me. 
a very important principle for us to understand and that he rejects this temptation and he does not follow into it at all. Now, for ourselves, how do we apply some of this to us? Think back on some of the temptations you may have experienced that were based especially on the principle of the ends justifying the means. Well, yeah, maybe I have to pay a bribe to get this done, but it'll be worth it. You know, when Mother Angelica was here in Birmingham, this, uh, she, was, she and the sisters supported the convent by roasting peanuts for the local baseball team, the Bear, Birmingham Barons. And one of the city officials came to her and said, well, to keep up this, you know, concession, you might have to give me a little something under the table. Now let's just stay doing this. Now the temptation would be to say, oh, well, we can survive. It's just a little bit to the sky. And mother said, you mean you want me to go to hell for a bunch of peanuts? Are you crazy? As you can imagine, mother saying that. So she didn't do it and she lost the concession, but... Eventually, that led her to um, getting the network and starting the network. So doing what was right helped her to do what God's will was. And think about any of those times that you may have uh, given into a temptation where the ends justifies the means. Think about that. Think about what lasted longer the pleasure you may have gotten from the sin or the negative feelings, the guilt, and the shame afterward. Usually those negative feelings, that shame, embarrassment, uh, and, uh, and guilt last longer than any of the pleasure may have lasted. Um, or, you know, just like those who are fasting or on a diet, the... Um, few moments of eating the cake last a lot shorter than the amount of time the cake stays on your waist. Just think of it that way. And think about people who promise a good life, you know, to you. How did their ideas turn out? You know, we have a lot of comedies over the decades on television that People come up with schemes, if you remember the honeymooners, and you know Ralph Crandall was always having schemes on his mind. Lucy always had schemes. They never worked out. It's just something that you have to keep in mind. And what we have to take a look, when we walk away from sin and walk away from evil, do you have regrets for not having done the evil? Or do you have more regrets when you commit it? Do you find more peace in your life when you reject temptation than when you give in to it? Pay attention to those spiritual movements within you about temptation and ask our Lord to give you the grace to overcome your temptations. And what you may want to do after you meditate on this passage is just conclude with an Our Father with a strong emphasis on the last petitions to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because that's where we find our peace. We'll take a little break. 
come back and take a look at the conclusion of the temptations. So please stay with us. meditation on this is from chapter 4 verse 11 in the Gospel of St. Matthew. It reads, And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Very simple verse. But if you remember, back in the second temptation that the devil had said to Jesus, Put your trust in the angels. Remember he said in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. So that's, you know, that was a temptation. And our Lord Jesus rejected Satan's the suggestion to trust in the angels and then tempt God in the process. But now, at the end of the temptations, the angels come to minister him and comfort him after this spiritual battle. They show a very important thing, that God's peace is given to our Lord after this gargantuan struggle, this gigantic struggle against Satan. When he rejects the temptation, a peace that brings long-lasting satisfaction that is far superior to any promise of excitement or promise of benefits, that the temptation may have offered. This peace is something that goes deep inside. And when people give in to temptation, that peace gets destroyed. So this is a very important thing. Now, we can also see something else besides this peace that came after overcoming the tempter we see another thing, which is that in going through these temptations, our Lord Jesus has won a grace for us. Our Lord Jesus wins us the grace of overcoming temptation. How many times have you said, I know I've said, I'm too weak to overcome my temptations. Some of us find it too difficult to avoid eating dessert during a diet, especially when it's one we like. That's, and that's nothing. It's nothing. 
there are much more difficult temptations. I, mean, I just feel overwhelmed. I, don't, I am too weak. But here we see in the temptations that Jesus, our Lord, is winning the graces to overcome temptations. Now we have, and we've talked about this before, that original sin continues to affect us because we have these disordered desires for good things. The things we want are in themselves good. Alcohol is good. Food is good. Tasty food is good. Sexuality is good. Owning possessions is good. These are all good things. But we want them in disordered ways. By disorder, we're talking about things that I want to satisfy and gratify my ego and my personal appetites rather than do what is good for me. I want a lot more ice cream than I want broccoli. Or, in my case, Brussels sprouts. Um, <laughs> I don't like Brussels sprouts, uh, especially when they're boiled. Baked, okay, but boiled, nasty. But, you know, that's good for you, but it's not what I want. I want ice cream. And so, <laughs> this is something that is disordered. My body needs more Brussels sprouts than it needs ice cream. And then, so that's known as concupiscence, disordered desires. And then when you add to it that oftentimes, sometimes by accident, sometimes on purpose, we slip into various sins and temptations, things that we don't even always know are wrong, might have a clue, but not a real clear idea. We give in. And it's easy for things to become habits, especially in the realm of things like food, possessiveness, sexuality, alcohol, and drug use. Okay? And some of these appeal to bodily needs. That's what things like food do, possessions, and sexuality. Some are not bodily needs, but wants, like alcohol, and narcotics. Some are temptations to pride, to build up my ego, to make me look good in my own eyes and in the eyes of people around me, to show off our intelligence, our accomplishments, or other sources of pride. And then there are spiritual temptations. Sometimes we are tempted against the truth and we need the truth. We can be tempted to separate ourselves from the truth of God so that I can show that I was being intellectually creative and I didn't have to go along and conform to things that God reveals in the Bible or something. And that appeals to a higher level of spiritual pride. Jesus overcame all these temptations. And in so doing, we can turn to him and say, Lord, I'm too weak to overcome temptation. I need the graces you won during your temptations to overcome mine. Give me those graces. Something else we can learn that's very important 
is that Jesus refused to engage Satan within the logic of Satan's own temptations. A lot of us are willing to accept the presuppositions of evil. We assume that this is the way things are. Well, like bribery, that's the way the world works. You know, I grew up in Chicago. We assume that that's the way things work. It's who you knew. Um, and we hear today in our culture, people will say so often ad nauseum, well, teenagers are just subject to raging hormones and that uh, all that a responsible adult can teach a kid is how to protect themselves from diseases or from unwanted pregnancy. But yeah, they can't stop their raging hormones and acting on them. This is giving into the logic of sin instead of the logic of God. We want to know the inner truth of God's love and the higher truth of what's best for us and how we love God and, lo and love ourselves and our neighbors. And we always see how in the temptations Jesus appealed to the higher logic of God as was written in Scripture. In his case, he quoted three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, 6, verse 16, and 6, 13. And by doing so, he contrasts the way Israel had failed in giving into temptation. They accepted the sin, and Jesus succeeded by appealing to that higher logic, that divine logic. We have to learn to do that and become more accustomed to it. So, we can also think about how Jesus' victory over sin has another role. It's the beginning of the undoing of the human history of sin. Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, and they gave in. And Christ is undoing that history of human sin that's in the world, and also the history of my own sin. And he knew that he could rectify us by his own sinlessness. Again, we quote this before, but let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, where Peter wrote, He committed no sin, that is, Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. This is a part of Christ undoing the history of sin. So think about your own life, as I have to think about mine, and our temptations, especially ones we give in to most easily. Pay attention to when temptation usually begins. Take a look at the sequence of thoughts, the logic of temptation, the logic of evil, as St. Paul calls it, the mystery of evil. And see the sequence of steps that you go from an initial temptation to following through on it. And then I recommend that you invite Jesus 
to enter into the scene. Use your imagination to picture him coming into your life at the moment of temptation and that he can uh, help you undo the sequence, the logic of evil and resist the temptation so that he gives you a logic of virtue. And then what would our Lord say to you? What would he speak to you about in terms of the temptations you're undergoing? As you unravel those thoughts that come from the truth of God's word to unravel and undo your temptation and refute the temptations. And then finally, ask Jesus for help to overcome temptation. Ask him to bestow his grace upon you, to have a strength beyond your own ability to overcome temptation. I can't do it. As St. Augustine said, Lord, command whatever you want, but give me what you command. Give me the grace to be able to do what you command. And I recommend the prayer that St. Ignatius of Loyola recommends at the end of our meditation called the Soul of Christ, where it reads, Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Let me never be separated from you. From the wicked foe, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to you so that with your angels and saints, I may praise you for all eternity. Amen. Okay? All right. Well, we've covered this material in chapter 4 about the uh, temptations. And what we'll do is uh, next week start taking a look at what our Lord did after the temptations. So from the time of temptation until the time he actually moves to Capernaum. So we'll take a look at some interesting episodes. All right, I'm going to take an email first. And this one uh, is from Chris. It says, Dear Father Mitch, in Matthew 26, 38 and Mark 14, verse 34, Jesus tells the three disciples, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Is this an Aramaic idiom or is there a different translation? Would not the disciples have been puzzled by or alerted to something so unusual as that phrase? All right, it seems to be that something um, uh, would make them pay more attention to what was going on rather than falling asleep. Well, there's, there's that maybe, but I'm not sure that that's the case. Now, one of the things going on there is, is this. Our Lord is actually using a type of phrase that is found in the Old Testament. It's not so much an Aramaic uh, idiom as it is an Old Testament idiom. So, for instance, um, let me just go over here to some notes that I have. Um, when our Lord, the Lord had said that in Gethsemane, 
And when he says it, he is actually thinking back on Jonah chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, when Jonah has a plant cover his head from the sun, then the plant dies. And the Lord God says, do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Also in the book of Sirach, chapter 37, verse 2, that it is a grief to the death when a companion and friend turns to enmity. That these are expressions that are close also to Psalm 41, especially in verses 5 through 7, when somebody wants his friends to die. So it's actually a more Hebrew expression and a biblical one. And it's very important that throughout the Passion narrative, our Lord refers back to some of the Old Testament texts. So that's, that's why I have that, okay? All right, well, let's take a break. And we'll come back with more of your emails and any of the calls that you might have. So please stay with us. Right, welcome back, and we have a caller. Mary, are you there? Hello. Hello, where are you calling from? Anchorage, Alaska. What time of day is it over there? Uh, before 10 o'clock in the morning. Fourth in the morning? Yeah, it's morning. We're four hours. Um, wow. You're ahead of us. Four yeah, hours, well, I think. we're it, it's all it's uh, Midwest. It's almost two o'clock in the afternoon. So, just letting people know how far away Alaska is. It's uh, such. I hope people come and visit. It's such a beautiful, stunningly beautiful place. So, yes. what can we do for you today? Well, uh, I don't understand how a human being could endure so much as Jesus mm -hmm. did physically. Yeah. Sufferings. Yeah. You know, one of the things, Mary, um, I think back on a number of people who suffer a lot and endure it, endure it. And what unites them is love. For instance, you know, thinking just of you, yourself, I don't know if you're a mom or not, but how many moms have gone through very, very difficult birth pangs? You know, some, some mothers have very difficult births. And they undergo that 
because of love of their child. At the moment, their pain is excruciating, but they can look back and, and realize how blessed they are to have that child. And many other people have endured tremendous suffering for, to protect loved ones from aggression. You know, this is what people do. And I think the correlation between how much somebody loves and how much they are willing to undergo because of that love. This is the, the, the task. This is the task. And I think to look, uh, and this is why it, as we come toward the last few weeks of Lent, to spend more time going through the passion of Christ and see that in light of how he put up with it precisely because he loved infinitely. He loved us so much that he was willing to do that. You don't do that for someone you have no concern for. You do it because of love. And that is the key. What we will do for the ones we love. And he shows that for us. Okay? I think reread it and take time to meditate. And for those of you who are interested, the book I wrote, uh, uh, Weeds and Tares, um, uh, excuse me, uh, wheat, wheat and Tares, Wheat and Tares, um, this, uh, I go through that passion just to see in step-by-step -step detail what is going on in the passion of Christ and his love for the Father and for us is absolutely key to understanding the mystery of his suffering. Okay? All right. Now we have another email here. This one is from Alexander. Dear Father Mitch, I understand why Protestants don't have the Old Testament deuterocanonical books of Tobit, 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, and Sirach. But I don't understand why they don't have Judith, 1st Maccabees, Bruch, the additions to Esther, and additions to Daniel. Um, I think not having these books and texts, because there are no Hebrew copies of them, is not a good reason because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. What parts of these books and texts uh, from Judith, 1st Maccabees, Bruch, and additions to Esther and Daniel don't agree with the Protestants' doctrine? What parts of those books and texts do they not like? Um, I don't know uh, what they disagree with. Uh, when I would, re you know, in reading, having read 1st Maccabees, Bruch, and Esther, and Daniel, uh, with those additions, I don't think there's anything that disagrees with their theology. However, you have to keep in mind that the deuterocanonical books are their own group because they were written a bit later than the other Old Testament books. And uh, part of Alexander's point is this. One of the reasons that Martin Luther gave for taking them out of the canon. And this is something very important uh, to understand. There are people who go around trying to say that the Catholic Church 
added those books at the Council of Trent. That is not the case. The oldest copies of the entire Bible we have go back to the 300s AD. It's the oldest, that's Old and New Testament. And those oldest copies have them. And in fact, you know, you don't come up on Bibles that didn't have them. The, septu uh, the, the uh, books were used and cited in the New Testament. And this is something that, uh, whether written in Hebrew or in Greek, they were still known. And so um, what Luther disagreed with theologically was especially in 2 Maccabees 15, where it says it is a good and righteous thing to pray for the dead. And if you recall, Luther began his whole reform by disagreeing with the sale of indulgences. Now, that was actually something the church did reform because it needed reformation, to be sure. And the church did reform that at the Council of Trent. But he didn't just want a reform of selling the indulgences. He wanted to get rid of indulgence and the concept of purgatory as well. And so that was a very big issue for him. And he got rid of those books. And if you study uh, the early life of Luther, you also find out that in the 15, the early 1520s, from about 1523 or so to 1526, he also took seven books out of the New Testament. A lot of folks don't know that, but he took seven books out of the New Testament because they didn't agree with his doctrine. The letter of St. James, chapter 2, verse 26, is the only mention in the whole Bible of being justified by faith alone. But he took it out because it says you are not justified by faith alone. So that disagreed with his doctrine, so he wanted to remove the book. Now his friend Philip Melanchthon told him you got to put it back. But he also got rid of the book of Revelation, Hebrews, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, um, uh, and Jude. He had all those books taken out for a while, but he put them back. It's not up to people like Luther to put books in or take out. We have from apostolic tradition that these are the books, and this was what the church decided on as being in the canon in the Synod of Rome of 382, the Synod of Carthage in uh, 392, the uh, Synod of Hippo in 397, um, and after that at the Council of Florence in 1437, and then again uh, Trent reconfirmed those earlier councils in 1546. So this is just what is, and you can't take books out on the basis you don't like the language or you disagree with the doctrine. 
our attitude as Catholics is to make our doctrine conform to Scripture, not Scripture conform to our doctrine. Okay? All right, then we have an email from Mark and Kathy. Our three-year-old granddaughter was looking at our holy card of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which portrays him with a red wounded heart and hands that have obvious wounds. This made her visibly upset, as she loves Jesus very much. We are lost to give her an age-appropriate explanation of what happened to Jesus to cause those wounds. And how would you explain that we, how do we suggest that we explain this to her, Mark and Kathy? couple things. I'll bet that your granddaughter may know some meanies at the playground. There may still be some mean kids that push others off of the uh, various exercise things that, or steal toys or won't let you play or selfish, uh, try to take your stuff. Say to her, you know about some of those kids that can be kind of mean? Well, there were some big people. Sometimes big people, adults, can be mean too. And there are some people that were mean to Jesus. And one of the things you have to learn, you don't like what they did to Jesus. So you can also learn from that and make sure you don't harm your friends. You don't be one of the meanies. But you learn from the meanies that that's not, you don't like what they do. Learn that that's what you don't want to do, okay? All right. So let us now go uh, to another caller. Hello, Darlene. Hi, Father Mitch. Hi, where are you calling from? Oh, Michigan, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Upper Peninsula. You bet. Have you still have snow? Oh, yeah. Yeah, feet yeah. I figured. Many feet of it. Many feet of it. <laughs> Bless your hearts. So, what can we do for you today? Well, first of all, I would like to thank you for your priesthood. Oh, okay, my pleasure. So I'll say that right up front. Thank you so much for being a priest. And I appreciate um, that. what my question is, you said that Satan uh, tempted Jesus by saying, I offer you the world if you throw yourself down. My under, the Jehovah Witnesses said that also, that that's why the world is really bound to, to Satan. Mm -hmm. I have heard that Satan lied to Jesus. There's no words in Scripture that it says, uh, what do you call it, that he owns the world. In fact, it says in the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and thereof. Right. So okay, so I'll let you go now. Okay? All right, now, Darlene, that's why we have to pay close attention to vocabulary and words. Notice in the temptation that it said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Not the world. The world belongs to God. And in fact, in Hebrew, they distinguish the, wor the word world from the word for earth. Earth is Eretz, and that is the planet that God created. The world is the inhabited area. But the word used here by Satan, uh, showed, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and these kingdoms are the various systems of human control. That's what a kingdom is, right? That these are the systems of human control over other people, oftentimes setting up very artificial borders. 
You know, that's why birds and animals don't need passports because these, these borders are artificial. And it's a human construct to control human life. And what is going on is those systems of human control, the kingdoms of the world, are what Satan has control of because people use their selfishness, their desires for power and such. The world belongs to God and the, and the earth is, is the Lord's. But human beings, especially under the influence of sin, use their influence to gain power over one another. And again, even in our country, I grew up in Chicago. I'm not naive about these things, that there's corruption of all different kinds and sinners of all kinds. That human control is what is under Satan's control. Okay, so that's an important distinction. I'm actually glad you raised that question. That's a good, very good one, good distinction to make. The world is good. Humans do a lot of messing up. One of the things I can't afford to mess up is that we are at the end of our show. So um, thank you all for being with us and may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And we pray this prayer for Our Lady's intercession for Ukraine after this dedication last week. Blessed Mother, you showed us your motherly love for your children of Rus, the people of Ukraine and Russia. And in these latter days, you appeared to the children at Fatima to call the world to prayer and repentance before the coming chastisements and to get us to repent before they were to befall. You ask us to wear your scapular as a sign of protection in your mother embrace and care for our welfare. So now pray for us and pray for the people of Ukraine. And may the Lord bless you all, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you and thank you for your support, VWTN.